Welcome to the Middle Tech Podcast, this region's leading business podcast, shining a light on technology, entrepreneurship, and the future of business in Kentucky and beyond. Our goal is to advance the ecosystem by bringing attention to the founders, changemakers, innovators, and those supporting them. Middle Tech's content can be found on your favorite podcast streaming app, social channels, and YouTube. We encourage you to follow and participate in the conversation. Let's discuss and build the future. Welcome back to the Middle Tech Podcast. You've got Logan Jones here. And for this episode, we are joined by Christian Miller, who is a principal at Poplar Ventures, uh, which is a VC firm located up in Louisville, Kentucky. So we've known Christian for uh, quite some time now. He's definitely one of the major up-and-coming venture capitalists in this area. So we wanted to sit down with Christian to do a real uh, deep dive into venture capital, everything from uh, how somebody his age has gone into breaking into the industry to what the day-to-day of a venture capitalist looks like and even the different ways that a venture capital firm can see returns on their investments when they're putting money into these startups. So uh, this is a conversation we feel like this area needs to have more of. Um, you know, we always hear from the founders that we interview that access to capital has been a problem around this area for quite some time. We do see that improving, but uh, we want to make sure that that improvement continues through lots of conversations like these. So we're excited to share this interview with you. Um, before we dive into it, as we always do, we want to get a quick word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Land Betterment. Land Betterment is doing some incredible work throughout Appalachia and Eastern Kentucky as they are taking abandoned strip mines and putting sustainable businesses in their place. These businesses not only provide a useful repurposing of the land, but they also provide great jobs to replace the mining jobs that were lost when the mine was shut down. To learn more about Land Betterment, you can listen to our interview with their founders, Mark Jensen and Kirk Taylor, on episode 97, or visit their website at landbetterment.com. We're also sponsored by Airwing Ventures. Airwing helps determined entrepreneurs seeking resources to grow with capital and connections in order to build successful companies and impactful legacies. They're all about high growth companies, high growth careers, and high growth communities. I've personally known Dan Beldy for about four years now, and I've seen the work he's been doing in the community, and we should all feel very blessed and grateful that a VC like himself is here in Kentucky. I encourage you to connect with Airwing and learn more Let's all grow this state together. You can reach out to Dan at info at airwing.vc or dan at airwing.vc. And their website is www.airwing.vc. Today, we're joined by Christian Miller, who is a principal at Poplar Ventures. So we've done several interviews with Poplar. Uh, We've had John Wilmoth on. We've done a full series with them even. Uh, So we're happy to be joined by Christian. How are you doing this evening, Christian? Doing great, guys. How are you? Excited to be here. Doing awesome now that we're uh, joined by you here on the podcast. Yeah, last time we had you on, you were a senior associate. Uh, So now you're a principal, which is awesome. So congrats on that. That's recent news. Yeah, appreciate it. A lot of momentum behind us right now in Poplar. Good. Well, we'll get into all of that. Uh, before we do, though, get into you know where you're from and briefly your educational background, and then we'll lead 
uh, use that as a lead in to the rest of the conversation. Yeah. So I'm originally from Columbus, Indiana, which is about an hour north of Louisville and an hour south of Indianapolis. I did my undergrad at a small liberal arts school here in Louisville, Kentucky called Bellarmine University, uh, where I majored in economics and business administration. And then I also had a mathematics minor. From there, I took the unusual path of going straight into my MBA up at Purdue University, where I focused on corporate strategy and finance. And yeah, that's my educational journey. So uh, jumping back into you know the venture capital discussion, when somebody asks you what you do for a living now that you are a venture capitalist, how do you describe to somebody that might not know uh, what a venture capitalist is? Somebody in your family at Thanksgiving asks you what you do for a living, what do you say? Oddly enough, I feel like not a lot of people know what venture capital is, even as popular as it is. So usually I just say, have you ever watched Shark Tank? Yes. Okay. That's what I do. Different type of investing, but very similar. And I'm not on a TV show doing it. I'm behind a Zoom call or you know private room meeting, but doing very similar types of questions and interviewing to distill down to a decision. Yeah. And so you did, uh, you know, when you got your master's at, at Purdue, you went more into the corporate finance role, but where did, where did venture capital really kind of enter the equation for you? When did you first get to start getting interested in that? Yeah. So I actually had a, a unique investing journey that started my first month at Purdue. So I actually got a graduate assistantship at the Purdue Foundry, which is a kind of startup ecosystem underneath the research foundation's umbrella where students, professors, anybody associated with the university who has an idea and wants to be a startup or take some of Purdue's IP and be a startup, they go through the foundry. And fortunate for me, in that time period, Purdue had several independent funds focused on uh, vertical applications. So ag, life science, and they were thinking through ways of how to consolidate that from more of a just general management perspective. And I got paired with John Hannock, who's the managing partner at Purdue Ventures or was the managing partner at Purdue Ventures. And he and I kind of formulated the vision for that. Um, and so I was one of the founding members of Purdue Ventures. And that was my first real taste. Now that's pre-seed, pre-product. Sometimes there may be post-product, but very, very early type investing and usually $100,000. You know, I made a couple $500,000 investments, but that really was the impetus to me going on and, and kind of getting in. I always knew I wanted to be in the private equity world, but that was really my first taste of venture capital and kind of working with early entrepreneurs. I then took that actually into private equity which was a very, very interesting leap. So I went from doing a 500K investments in pre-revenue companies to uh, leverage buyouts or controlled buyout transactions. So anywhere from 30 million to 300, 400 million transactions buying the entire company. Much different process, very different critical thinking skills. But then I took kind of the combination of the two and and shows venture capital and uh, a little bit later seed series A stage here at Poplar Ventures. Got it. And now that you've gotten into VC, I'm sure you study the space pretty closely. Are there any uh, venture capital firms or specifically a venture capitalist that you really look up to that you try to kind of model your thesis after? It's a good question. So I will approach the individual first and then answer your question around firm. Um, so Doug Leone over Sequoia, 
is probably one of my all-time favorite venture capitalists. And really, I think he obviously has gone on to do very successful things with Sequoia and now runs the entire firm. But in the interviews and, and stuff I read about him and researching him, and, and John's also worked with him before in the past on some of the deals he's done, a consistent message of transparency and being humble along the journey while also still being a, a very strong and tenacious investor in the venture capital world, which is needed, is something I strive to be. You know, I, I want to do it kind of the right way, not the sharp elbowed way that so many people hear about, you know, the bad reputation that investors get primarily in the venture capital world. And I feel like he's always done that and stayed true to that and has gone on to do very successful things while still doing that. So I, I really aspire to that and look up to that. And I think that's just awesome. From a firm perspective, you know, Andreessen, so A16Z, I think is a really cool model in how they approach and is very consistent with what John and I are trying to build, where you're partners first and investors second. So really trying to, to be a partner to the entrepreneurs you're backing along their journey and not isolating that to specific tasks, but really just asking the founders, what do you need? Let us figure out how we can be a strategic value add to that. And I've loved the way they've grown in that over the years and continue to double down on it. So from a firm perspective, I would say they're probably my favorite. So let's take a deeper dive here, you know, which is the purpose of, of largely this conversation. We want to take a deeper dive into, you know, as you are in the weeds with this every day, uh, you know, what's it like? And so we want to talk about, number one, break down the basic skills and elements it takes uh, to be a VC. Uh, so to, off the top of our heads, we thought, you know, networking, understanding of, of finance, but break it down as far as what skill sets you need, what you use on a day-to-day. So I think the greatest and most challenging part about being a venture capitalist is the fact that it's not the same for every venture capitalist. There are things that are very consistent, and, and you just highlighted basically the ones that, that are. But I think if you were to do a a kind of research project across the landscape of junior investors and senior investors, you're going to get a broad range of different backgrounds and their approach to investing. So for me personally, I guess is the best way to answer that. I'm very people driven. And so I think venture capitalists truly differentiate themselves through political capital people capital. And also venture capitalists have a means of differentiating themselves via how they educate themselves. And I think people are the most powerful way to do that. Obviously, you know, people write books, do biographies, videos, etc. But I think having that one-to-one interaction whenever possible and, and you can, I think that is the best way to learn. And for me, I've, and that's how I learned very well, is, is being able to ask direct questions and interact and take that conversation to maybe a level deeper than what you get at just a, a book or a presentation. And that's where I've really tried to excel in being the best venture capitalist that I can be. I think you obviously need to understand business acumen, not necessarily directly running a business, but understand the dynamics of running a business and starting a business and both the personal and professional implications of what those entrepreneurs are doing and having empathy towards them 
is a powerful thing a venture capitalist can do that not, I don't think many venture capitalists take upon themselves to do. And then finance skills. Uh, you know, it, it's prudent upon any type of investor to have some financial acumen. I think the best venture capitalists are able to take that financial acumen and turn it into a strategic thought process that's going to be a value add to the investments they're making. Yeah. So talk a little bit about what the day-to-day -day would look like for you as a VC. I'm sure you're a little bit of talking to founders, a little bit of working on financial models and a little bit of researching. But when you come into Poplar Ventures on a normal day, typically what goes on, even if it's a, a really basic breakdown, I'd love to get some insight on what that looks like. So it drastically changes day to day, but usually my mornings are where I try to be most productive because usually I, I'm less interrupted during that time. And so, um, you know, I try and try and start between 7.30 and 8. And from then till about lunch, I will be getting most of the intimate work that I need to do done. So whether that's writing investment memos, doing direct research associated with companies, canvassing for either specific industries we may want to invest in or entrepreneurs we may want to back. So a lot of the very thought provoking tasks I'll try and do in the morning, sending emails, et cetera. And then Noon and beyond is usually when I'm probably putting out fires or catching up on emails or, you know, answering those one-off emails and then doing some of the more mundane tasks associated with being a venture capitalist, right? Which is a lot of people blowing up your emails, I'm sure you can imagine. And also you're trying to network constantly. And so from that period of kind of after lunch, before the end of the day is when I try and do a lot of my networking because it's a lot of, you know, cold outreach, a lot of just connections, setting up calendars. You know, there's, there's a lot of mundane processes with, you know, trying to meet, you know, have a target. Thank about, God for Calendly. Oh my God. Changed my life once I got into there. Um, Absolutely. So yeah, exactly. And then, you know, I'll take a break and then probably my nightly tasks are educating myself. So reading what transactions took place in the past 24 hours, you know, where are the mega firms focusing their time and efforts and also just what's naturally occurring in the industries that we're focused on, which is B2B software. And so maybe what the public companies are doing and what's happening in the broader economy from a macro perspective. Yeah, for sure. And you mentioned you guys are focused on B2B SaaS, you know, software businesses, uh, what about stage? Uh, what stage are you guys typically investing in? It's such an interesting question these days. I hate putting a, a staged name on it, but I guess you could say C plus Series A. Now, I think the powerful thing about Poplar is we are flexible capital. And so we have some hard and fast targets and criteria that, that the companies we look at need to be around. But at the same time, we're opportunistic thinkers and backers. And so if we find a company, let's just say that's a Series B, no, we're not going to be able to lead that round. But the round is likely going to need to be syndicated. And we are value-add investors, right? So we have John's background, we have my background, and we have an LP base of all operators for the most part, or ex-operators. And they can all, all add value in their own right. We haven't even have an advisory board that adds that value. And so wherever we can apply that value 
in a unique way to create outsized returns, but also minimize the downside risk associated with venture capital investing, that's where we want to deploy our capital. So if that happens in a pre-revenue pre-seed deal, which we've done in our portfolio, or a later stage Series A deal, which we've done in our portfolio, we'll capitalize on those opportunities. But usually we're telling people like Series A investors. And how are you sourcing a lot of those deals? I assume that's coming mostly from the networking and research that you're doing. But like, where are you actually going to find that information? What sources are you using? Networking for sure. So we have a CRM uh, mm -hmm. that we use that also has a networking component associated with it, uh, which which is very powerful for me. It allows me to streamline a lot of the tasks versus going through LinkedIn and trying to associate people with companies or other you know networking relationships that usually aren't there on LinkedIn, right? And so networking for sure, I source a ton of deals for that. And that includes firm references and, and, and you know, going back to the point of being value add capital and flexible capital, I think a lot of venture firms see that in our early onset of our, our journey here. Uh, and we've proven true to that. And so we actually do get a lot of calls from other venture capital firms who are trying to syndicate with us as a you know, co-lead or follow in the round that they're doing. But then also, obviously the natural one is you get a lot of deals from the later stage firms, right? So if we're series A, my goal as a venture capitalist to go source deals is build meaningful relationships, both with later stage investors, so series B and growth investors, as well as early, earlier than us investors. So pre-seed, seed firms. And the reason is they're not investing or being competitive towards the deals that I am, but they are definitely seeing all those deals or on the pre-seed side have portfolio companies that are very interesting to me. And so by building those relationships, you become their political capital, right? Because the, the power to them is making introductions for the entrepreneurs that they think are really strong, but just don't fit inside their firm's thesis or investment criteria. And so that I would say is the natural component of networking and sourcing. And then there's cold outreach. You know, you're looking at who just closed a seed round and, you know, in 12 to 18 months, it's going to want to try and raise a series A. But I would say that's probably 10 to 20% of the deals that I source. And then I love ecosystem supporters and advocates and advisors. So people like yourselves have sent me plenty of deals. So I think to me, that is one of the most interesting ones. One, because there's such an intimate relationship usually with the ecosystem participants and the startups coming out of those ecosystems, right? And we, we focus on underrepresented geographies. And so the ecosystem participants are usually trying to really build those up. And so by building a meaningful relationship with those folks, you can usually find some pretty good gems that people aren't looking at. And once you find them, once you find a company you're interested in, Real quickly, because we talked about this on the series we did with you all, but uh, what do you look at in a company? What are some of the indicators that you say, okay, I want to spend more time with these people? Uh, what are some of the er indicators and characteristics you look for? Team. So for me personally, I'll just kind of give my my perception of it all. Founder market fit. So the entrepreneurial team that is launching the company or founded the company, what relevance do they have to the problem they're trying to solve and knowledge base they have that they can apply to that problem and solution? To me, that's very important. And then secondly, what is the market like? Is this a growing market? Is the curve up and to the right? 
And is there opportunity? So if the answer is yes, that means there's opportunity for multiple players to win. If it's a very niche and small market, nine times out of 10, from a venture capitalist perspective, the deals that are going to win in those types of market is literally the top one or top two companies going after that market. So the room for risk reduction is lower in those types of markets. And then where we fit in series A is kind of around that product market fit stage. Usually they've probably just started getting that. And so what what is proving that element, right? And there's multiple KPIs that, that can be associated with that. And, you know, revenue is obviously one of them. And to me, that's very important, right? Is this problem something that the customers are pulling for? Or is this something that you're trying to push? And push is not a bad thing, but it is usually associated more with a very, very big disruption or a pain point that you're educating your customer on. And that latter piece, not to say there's never been winners in that that realm, but that latter piece is a hard piece to launch a company around. And, it, and it's likely going to take more capital and more resources to, to succeed in that type of strategy. And we're capital efficient investors. We're venture capitalists, but we don't believe in the, that you just need to raise money to spend money, right? We are providing you money for a specific purpose, and we want you to execute on that purpose and go get those resources that are going to meet your vision, right? But you can do it in a prudent way. And that's where both John and I are very focused when we look at deals. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's a difficult job. And so what's it like, you know, what, what kind of mindset does it take to, to do your job and know, you know, maybe at your stage, this is a different number. Maybe you haven't, maybe you can educate us on this number, but, you know, most startups fail, you know, nine and 10, you know, maybe even more than that. Maybe the percentage is worse than that of what, you know, number of startups are successful. You know, what kind of mindset does it take as a venture capitalist to, to thrive in that kind of environment? <laughs> Strong will. Um, <laughs> it's a good question. I think for me, what I've learned in my short, short journey in my career so far is empathy and humility are two really big things that can allow you to succeed in this industry, which are not just naturally thought of, right? Like you got to, you got to have a good intuition. You got to have a good gut. You got to have a strong backbone. You got to be able to, you know, take criticism, deal with the tough times, be modest in the successful times. But I think empathy and humility allow you to really relate with the entrepreneurs and what they're going through and put yourself in their shoes and be more of that partner for the ones that are going to fail. And it's going to be a lot of them and knowing that up front, right? You, you accept the risk, right? What we do as a venture capitalist is we associate or correlate risk to every investment. And by funding the dollars to that company, we're saying, we know those risks going in and we accept them. So the element of, of startups failing should be common nomenclature to all venture capitalists going into every single deal they do. You want it to succeed. You're hopeful and you're passionate that it will be successful, but you should always have the understanding that the probability of it failing is high. And I think that's needed and necessary to be successful as a venture capitalist or any type of investor. Because even in the later stages you go, that doesn't mean that they're just because they've raised $500 million and are, you know, very successful to that point, doesn't mean that they're going to go not go out of business or not face, you know, look, 
a prime example is Juul, right? So, gosh, my timing is probably going to be off here, but let's just, let's just say from 2014, I think when they were founded, 2013 when they were founded, to the 2017-2018 timeframe, they, they went gangbusters. They're a multi-billion dollar company. And I think about six months, I want to say, six to nine months after that transaction took place, the FDA came in and put a ton of regulations around vaping and Juul specifically just completely deteriorated the company, right? Just fundamentally, there's nothing they can do about it, right? They can't go change laws and they lobbied before those laws went into place. And so that's just a prime example of a company who's a multi-billion dollar company who's raised a ton of money, has been super successful in a very short period of time that you're seeing a lot right now. Doesn't mean things can't just switch on a dime and change. And so I think the risk factor in association just should always be there. To me, that that's very important. It's just understanding, accepting that risk, being empathetic to the founders that you're backing, being equally as passionate with them about what they're trying to accomplish, and being a partner to them. And and you know, there's some firms out there that will see failure or begin to see failure and just kind of write it off instantly. And I think you know, middle America venture capital firms, Midwestern, Southern, Southeastern type venture capital firms say, let's, let's not write it off. You, you obviously want to focus on your winners, but let's continue to be a value add partner and, and maybe get a 2X out of this or get our money back. And I think that's kind of also what we try and do. I think that's a good segue into kind of the next question that I have. You know, you always think of uh, VC firms getting their returns whenever a company goes public. Uh, but a lot of times, like what you just said, I'm sure there's the scenarios where you just get your money back. You only get a 2x return. Kind of walk us through how a typical VC firm like Poplar, all the different ways that you guys can make money or get a return on that investment. Because I'm sure a lot of people only think it happens when uh, the company goes public or has a big exit like that. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point uh, and great topic. There's a lot of ways, actually, you can get liquidity. So you can do, I'll just start with the easy ones. So you get the IPO route, which is taking your company public and you're going to get monetization through that means. Now, I would also like to say, just given how popular and present SPACs are um, and the entire IPO market, right? I think we're at the highest levels. Uh, well, now my, my data is referencing June, but we were at the highest levels of SPACs and IPOs in the first half of 2021 than we were in all of 2020 and 2019. Like that is an insane number to think about, right? And also at the same time, we're at the highest valuations of all time in our history, right? So that combination of the two, meaning that the SPAC IPO market is overvalued. So I had to get my little plug in there uh, on that. And then you have more traditional private equity. So private equity is the same as a venture capitalist. A venture capitalist is actually in the private equity industry. But usually people associate private equity with what's called a leverage buyout firm. And so private equity will come in and they'll buy the entire company from us. So we have a portfolio company A, where we know they're not going to go public. And it doesn't mean it's not going to be successful. It's just probably going to be a 200 million company, uh, valued company. And that private equity firm will come in and say, we're going to buy portfolio company A for $200 million we get liquidity out of that event, right? We don't carry over into that ownership structure. The alternatives, which are not usually 
full liquidity, but do provide liquidity is secondary transactions. And so there are actually firms out there who specialize in secondary securities. And what they do is they come in and buy us out, right? So they'll, they'll take a position or they'll take our shares that we own and they now become on the cap table and we get liquidity through that. It's not the ideal means, but uh, there's a strategy there uh, without diving too deep into it. And then you have what's called recapitalization. And that means that uh, you go out and you raise debt usually, and that debt will provide liquidity to the shareholders. So you, you go, you value the company, let's say it's valued at 100 million, and you want to put 20 to 30% of leverage on the company. So you're bringing in 20 to 30 million. Well, that 20 to 30 million is not operating cash. It's not used for business purposes, but it provides liquidity to the shareholders. Um, and I would say those are probably the four most common ways to get. So, and then what about you? And let's use Poplar Ventures case. Uh, <laughs> how do the venture capitalists themselves make money? So you and John, uh, you guys are raising capital from other wealthy individuals or you know people that have already exited you know their companies. And then you are saying, hey, let me put this money to work for you. Is that how that's working? And then how do you guys get, get paid? Yeah. So, you know, we, we have an operational fee, what's called a management fee. So usually that's 2% of your assets under management. Uh, so if I have a $100 million fund, then I'm bringing in $2 million a year to uh, pay for, you know, our salaries, uh, all of our operating and back-end expenses, admin expenses, et cetera. I think... If you're not in the industry, what people don't understand sometimes is that 2% takes away from my investable capital, meaning that over the 10 year period, right? So I'm going to get a fund is usually has a 10 year lifespan. That 2% is really 20%. So if I have a hundred million dollar fund, then 20% of that hundred million or 20 million is not going to be able to put towards companies. So now all of a sudden when I'm investing and thinking through my return structures and what my targets are, I naturally am in the hole 20 million when I start up. That's just the way you got to think about it. And I got to make up for that 20 million through the returns that I make. And that's part of how I get paid. But then we have what's called carried interest. And so it changes by fund. And I'm just going to give you the, the normal uh, structure, but there are different structures out there. So the way it works is when we return our capital to our investors, um, we have to return the principal, 100% of the principal back. So I was talking about, I only have 80 million to invest out of. I have to return 100 million back to my investors before I ever can recognize a dime or pay myself, right? And so usually carried interest, right? That everybody talks about, it's huge in the tax market right now. I actually don't get paid that usually till well beyond our first or third, second or third exit, because I have to give all that principal back to my investors first. So if my first three exits in my firm are worth 90 million in total. I didn't make it, let's just say those deals were five X's, right? They, they were awesome deals for our firm. I still don't get paid a dime on those deals. Usually now there's different structures in firms, but just normal for normal sake. And then once I return my principal, we split it 80, 20. And so if I return an additional 100 million in profits to my investors, my firm gets to keep 20 million, 
And then that 20 million is split up between the general partners and other members or investors in the fund. Nice. Got it. Okay. Very cool. All right. Let's transition to local discussion here. Uh, so that was like the general deep dive into what it's like to be a VC, how you got to become a VC. Now let's dive into you know Kentucky specifically, which we always like to do. Uh, what's your raw take on the startup ecosystem? So you were at an event last night. Uh, I was at an event last night. Seems like there's some momentum. Some days it feels like there's not any momentum. Uh, but what's your raw take on you know the Kentucky startup ecosystem right now? My raw take, raw um, take. Un, unfiltered. Don't be nice about it if you unless you unless, unless you have something nice to say. All yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I will I try and pride myself on always being transparent, and so I will be now. I think there's a lot of positive momentum in Kentucky and the startup ecosystem. I think the way individuals here are approaching and thinking around how do I support startups? How do I found a company? How do I invest in startups? I think there's a lot of great conversations happening in that regard. And so I'm, I'm excited from that perspective. Now recognize that it takes time. So you're, you're kind of betting like, hey, I think what's happening right now is very positive. A lot of great things are happening. I hope they're the right things. You know, that's the issue is you don't know for several years until some of these successes start to manifest themselves in the ecosystem. And so I think that's where Kentucky is today. There's definitely been great things and, and momentum behind several companies, but just from a broad ecosystem perspective, I don't think that we're quite in that hyper growth inflection curve yet. I hope we're getting there. And I, I think there's a lot of people doing a lot of great things to get there, but we've yet to really start to see what's happening in Chicago and Indianapolis and Atlanta and Nashville and a lot of those ecosystems where they have started to hit their inflections. And I'm hopeful we'll get there. And, and I think the big message that I uh, can tell everybody is it's through collaboration. And so <laughs> this is a common thing I come to learn in Kentucky and I, and I know it's everywhere in other states, but like there's so much divide relative to like schools and cities, geographies as a general whole, you, you know, your, your approach to horses and bourbon and, you know, like Trinity and St. X here in Louisville, like there's like so much divide and like you have to pick one side or the other. And I think collaboration is the key to success. And I think, I hope over the years, people start, continue to start realizing that that is the piece that's missing here in the Kentucky ecosystem. And I think we hope we can all come together, you know, Lexington, uh, Louisville, and all the other cities in between come together to just be like, we're Kentucky. Let's be successful as Kentucky, not successful necessarily as Louisville or Lexington or any other city. And um, to me, that's the catalyst to success. Yeah, that's something we've been talking a lot about at Middle Tech actually is, you know, Lexington and Louisville on their own are not, they're just not big enough to be startup ecosystems like what a Nashville or a Cincinnati or an Indianapolis might be. We need to be, like you just said, the Kentucky ecosystem. We need to be supporting each other kind of as a whole and not sectioning ourselves into the different cities. So I 100% agree with, agree with you there. I mean, just thinking about it, because Evan wants my own raw take. I also think corporations play a massive role in what happens 
with entrepreneurs, startups, and that uh, accumulation of wealth that happens from liquidity with startups. And, and I'm not just saying that through the means and lens of corporate acquisitions, so corporations buying those startups, but more from the support perspective of those leaders at those big corporations, you know, and, and there's a ton in Louisville, right? Uh, you know, Humana, Yum Brands, there's a ton of massive companies based here. And I'm not just singling those two out, but those are the two biggest here in Louisville. And I know there's a ton in Lexington as well, in Kentucky overall. And I think the way that we can pull those individuals at those leadership positions into the startup community, and I'm not saying like on a day-to-day basis, and there's unique ways to do it, but I think if you can bridge the gap there and double down on the ones, you know, Humana was not Humana today 15 years ago. They were a startup, more or less. And I think sometimes that gets lost in the corporations as they succeed, and rightfully so. They earn the right to be from that mindset. But hopefully, as you know, Southerners and Midwesterns, I never know what to call myself as a Louisville person. Hopefully, we can all begin to have those values and stay true to those values and be supportive and collaborative of, of each other. And so corporations aren't just mutually exclusive from the startup world and ecosystem. And I think they need to be kind of brought back in a little bit. And there's a lot of momentum and things being done in the backgrounds. You know, I don't mm-hmm. think it's um, common knowledge yet, but I think that's a, that's a critical part that, quite frankly, not a lot of people just talk about. Um, I think having those conversations like, you know, you guys speaking with a CEO of a big corporation or, you know, corporate development, you know, John comes from, you know, he was with Nextel as a startup. But he was our vice president of corporate development. So he was a top executive at Nextel, which was a you know, billion-dollar company, multi-billion-dollar company. But he also did venture investing as part of his role. And there are there are companies like that, corporations like that. And I think, you know, we Papa, we don't do a great job of it. We need to do a better job of, you know, building those meaningful relationships with those companies that have venture arms and are also focusing on on what's happening in emerging tech. Um so yeah, I think I think that's a key piece I'm missing. Logan, I cut you off. No, all good. I'm I'm glad you interjected there and put that in there because I think especially in a city or a state as a whole where the mindset might be a little bit more conservative, it's really important to have those pre-established companies kind of realize that the best way for them to be innovative and support the the ecosystem and kind of lift the state as a whole is to have that collaboration like what you're talking about. And even with the startup I'm at, we've seen that. We've actually worked with big corporations that have have taken us a long way down the road in terms of uh, giving us feedback and and business just in general. Um, So I I love that part. I'm glad you interjected there. Uh, But to to get back to that question I was asking, just kind of looking long term into the future of this region, talk about why you're passionate about this area and where you see it going into the next, you know, three to five to 10 years even. So everything I just said uh, is, is what gets me excited, right? Because, uh, well, I'm a startup investor, right? So, so I like believing in things before other people are believing in them and, and helping them create value along that journey, right? That's, that's truly what a venture capitalist is. So I'm excited from that perspective. I think there's a ton of opportunity within Kentucky to capitalize on a movement on many fronts, one being venture capital, and all the dry powder that is out there. 
you know, now with the democratization of technology and talent and everything around it, people can be involved in Kentucky that necessarily didn't have the means to be involved in Kentucky before, right? So engineers who are based out in San Francisco or people who are, you know, have the boomerang effect, right, can come back. And I think that is starting to to happen. That started to happen because of COVID. And to me, I'm really excited about because Kentucky is a great place to live. You know, my wife and I, we left uh, after Bellman. We lived in Detroit for four years and then moved back. And so so I totally get the, the dynamic of that and, and what that's like. But I've also seen what it's like to live in other places. And Kentucky's awesome. Like there's so much great greatness about Kentucky that I don't think people really realize. And the values here, the cost of living, the burb and the horses, you know, it's just so much. And people are passionate here. And I think that passion is going to be what, you know, propels us. And so I'm hopeful that over the next five years, we'll begin to see companies who expand out of what I say, the series A category, which I think has been the ceiling for startups in the Kentucky region. You know, for some reason, that growth thought process and factorization has not come into play for startups. So I hope to see a lot more Series B and growth investing occurring here in the region. You know, Climate Vision just raised $100 million. I want to see more of that happening around us because that will eventually lead to big liquidity events, right? And so this is, this is the whole premise of ecosystem building. You support the best startups in your regions early on. And you empower them to share the equity with their employees. And that's partly on the venture capitalists too. And then you support them to grow to growth equity rounds, series C, series D, series E. And then eventually that leads to a very big exit, hopefully a unicorn exit, right? Versus, versus the alternative is saying grow to be a series A lifestyle type business. Right. So exit for like 50 million or something like that, which is great. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. And if you can get to that point. You are successful. And you have every right to, to be happy about it. But as far as like the future of Kentucky and what we need, that is what we need. And we need that trickulation of wealth to come down to the employees. And then they stay here. And then they start their next company. And then all of a sudden you get this flywheel effect of people who are, have been successful doing it are doing it again with wealth behind them and or they're investing or they become angel investors and advisors. Anybody of you out here, uh, you know, popular ventures like that's our model, right? Like that's how we try to invest. We get LPs who have operating backgrounds that needs to start occurring on a, a more frequent basis. So hopefully that happens in five years. After that, like I think 10, 15 years, you're looking at like the next Chicago or Atlanta uh, or Boston even. Like I think that really propels you to that inflection point that we, we don't know what it looks like, but it's exciting to think about. Absolutely. Well, that's some good inspiration to end it on there. Before we let you go, you mentioned you're a big networker and you're always uh, looking to meet people and, and learn new things. So where can people reach out to you? Where can they find you? Go ahead and, and plug yourself there for, for a second before you hop off. Yeah. So um, generally, www.poplarventures.com. And you can, all both my and John's contact information is on our website. We also have what's called an open forum at the last Friday of every month. 
where John and I carve out 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. Eastern time, 30-minute slots. Anybody in the world can sign up for that. And there's a direct calendar link on our website. You just go and click for the next one that's available. And you can literally carve out 30 minutes to talk with us about whatever. And that's the easiest way to network with us if you really do want to get in touch and have a meaningful conversation. And then alternatively, you can also reach out via LinkedIn. I try and be as proactive as I possibly can there. Twitter, cmiller502. Um, I try to be active there and share some thoughts around you know where we're investing and what we see happening in the technology ecosystems and markets. And those are the best ways to, to reach out to me. Christian at Poplar Ventures is my email. We I try and be the best I can on responding, even if I don't think you're a great fit and providing that feedback loop to any entrepreneur or anybody just trying to network. Awesome. Love that. Well, thanks so much, Christian. This has been a great deep dive into what it's like to go from being in, in college and interested in finance and getting all the way to where you are now in VC. So thanks so much for coming on and share, sharing your insights. Uh, we've really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, thanks, guys. Appreciate you having me. And, and I love what you guys do. And I think you guys are part of that catalyst that, that excels Kentucky to the next phase of growth. So keep doing what you're doing.